BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. It's Friday morning, July 16, about 8.30 in the morning in Washington, D.C., and time for our weekly roundtable where we look back at the news of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters. President Biden was busy this week. He went to Philadelphia to push for new voting rights legislation. He went to the Capitol to rally Senate Senate Democrats behind a giant new $3.5 trillion budget bill. And he invited families to the White House to launch a new wave of $300 checks for almost every kid in America. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump was busy, too. He sat down with just about everybody writing a book about him and now says he regrets every one of those interviews and denies everything the new books reveal. And he traveled out to CPAC to claim that members of the mob that stormed the Capitol on January 6th did so out of pure love. (laughs) Well, if you have a hard time making any sense of all of that, Here are three people who can. Today's panel, Sabrina Siddiqui joining us, White House reporter for The Wall Street Journal and political analyst for CNN. Welcome back, Sabrina. Thanks for having me. Jeff Dufer, editor-in-chief of The National Journal. Hello, Jeff. Good morning, Bill. And making her first appearance on the Bill Press Pod, we are very pleased to welcome Sung Min Kim, White House reporter for The Washington Post, CNN analyst, and a good longtime friend. Hello, Sung Min Kim. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to have you there. So um, something really big deal happened at the B- BFD, as Joe Biden might say, uh, at the White House this week. Um, let's hear the president uh, announce this new program. Checks started rolling out yesterday to almost uh, every family with kids in America. Here's the president. And this can make it possible for a hardworking parent to say to his or her child, honey, we can get you new braces now. We can get you a tutor to help you in that math class you're having trouble. We can get you the sports equipment you need to sign up to for your first team you're going to play on. And to give you a sense of how transformative this is, this would be the largest ever one-year decrease in child poverty in the history of the United States of America. Sabrina, let's start with our two White House reporters here. Sabrina, uh, this is a big deal. I figure, you know, if you've got three kids, that's $900 a month or about $11,000 a year. That makes a big difference. It certainly is. And this is something that the White House and Democrats have touted as a significant step toward ending child poverty. There are roughly 35 million families who receive their first monthly payout as part of this program. Um, you know, as you point out, it's roughly $300 for each child under six years old and up to $250 for each older child. And most most pe- most U.S. taxpayers, uh, for them, the payments are automatic. There are some who need to sign up. But the program covers nearly 60 million eligible children. So it's it's something that I think um, is not- is very significant, but it is for now temporary. And I think the big question now for the White House is whether or not they will be able to expand these monthly benefits and make them more permanent as part of the $3.5 trillion spending plan that's being considered by Senate Democrats. Uh, we already know that there is strong Republican opposition to that bill. And, um, you know, if if that, if they're able to continue and get some kind of more permanent extension of the child tax credit into that bill, then I think it will absolutely have a very significant uh, impact on not just child poverty, but also on what the structure looks like uh, for what would effectively be universal basic income for children, even albeit with some limits. 
Mm-hmm. Well, so Song Lin Kim, here's what uh, I don't understand. I mean, the Washington Post this morning calls this the biggest anti-poverty program undertaken by the federal government in more than half a century, back to the time of LBJ. My question is, why hasn't this gotten a lot more attention, made a lot more, a lot more noise made about it? the White House kind of fall down in, in promoting this? I think uh, particularly um, earlier this week on Thursday, the day where the checks really started to go out and money started to appear in the bank bank accounts of families across America, both the Biden administration and uh, Democratic lawmakers who obviously had key roles in getting this expanded child tax credit into law, embarked on a big kind of public relations campaign to make sure that people, first of all, that people knew what was happening, that they were getting that, you know, most every children child in America was getting this extra money. And also, who deserves the credit, frankly, for yeah. making that happen? Um, I do think the question that you – the point that you raise about, um, about talking about this more often is certainly going to be a focus of Democrats because this um, – I mean, and we've talked about this several times, but even early on in this Biden presidency, people who work in this White House, people who work in this administration are in formed by lessons that many of them learned during the Obama administration. And one of those lessons is that when you pass big things, you know, such as um, an economic, economic stimulus package, you have to go out there and sell it and take credit for it. And that's what the Biden White House Democratic lawmakers are trying to do right now. So you had uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi do a big do a big press event out in San Francisco touting the child tax credit. You had a big event at the White House yesterday where both President Biden and Vice President Harris was there talking about this. Um, you know, so some senators, Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii, uh, jokingly or maybe not jokingly said maybe we should call them the Biden bucks. <laughs> so, uh-huh. so they they're certainly going to try to make it clear to voters, particularly ahead of the 22 midterms, and particularly right now, as Sabrina mentioned, as they're discussing whether and how to expand this child tax credit, uh, they're they're really going to be talking about this as much as they can and make sure that message gets into voters' minds. Jeff, uh, as both uh, Sabrina and Sungmin mentioned, this is, for now, only a temporary program set to expire in a year. The way government works, the reality is it's going to be awfully hard to cancel this program, which will be immensely popular a year from now, won't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's pretty rare for government programs to sunset at all. And it's especially rare if they're benefit programs. Yeah. And, and, and people get used to seeing this money hit their bank account. Um, I was, to your point earlier about uh, maybe they undersold it to begin with, I was sort of surprised when it hit my bank account two days ago. Oh, mm-hmm. wow, money. Isn't that nice? Um, but the, the sales pitch has changed too, hasn't it? Back in March, this was, this was sold as part of the broader economic stimulus coming out of COVID. And now, uh, to your point earlier, it's being touted as one of the biggest anti-poverty programs since the great society. Uh, so the, 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 its whole reason for being is, is, is changing a little bit. Now it's become sort of a junior version of Andrew Yang's plan where we're going to send money every, every month. Um, and, and and it's kind of truthfully, I'm, I'm curious about it. It's it's sort of an interesting social experiment um, to the degree of are we going to be able to measure exactly how successful something like this is versus a traditional, let's say, welfare and food stamps program. And if it is, maybe we end up uh, shifting the social safety net a little bit. Uh, the only thing I'd wonder in terms of of of, of extending this indefinitely is that the, the phase outs are pretty high for this. I mean, people who make hundreds of thousands of dollars are, are still getting a check for this. So I do wonder if a compromise for keeping it around and getting some Republicans on board becomes means testing it to a higher degree. And speaking of political reality, Sabrina, won't we also see, like we did with the infrastructure bill that uh, we see with infrastructure, that um, some Republican senators may vote against it, but they'll be out there <laughs> bragging about it to their constituents. You got that check, right? <laughs> Hope you appreciate it. Well, I think that is something that we saw, as you pointed out, uh, with the 
COVID relief package, the $1.9 yeah, trillion right. dollar, uh, package that President Biden signed into law in March. Uh, you had a number of Republicans, all of whom voted against it, uh, who were touting the benefits on mm-hmm. social media. But this kind of goes back to a point that Sungman was making, where it really is on the White House and Democrats to sell these policies to the American public and to be the ones, especially going into midterms, to take credit for what they feel is having a meaningful impact on people's lives. And in this administration, um, the White House is very bullish on the notion that the midterms will largely be about whether or not people's lives have gone back to normal following the COVID-19 pandemic and whether they've seen any economic improvement given the pandemic's uh, impact on the economy and the recession that ensued. So that's the gamble that they've made, um, or that's the calculus, I should say, that they've made. And so a lot of the messaging moving forward really will be on the White House and Democrats because they currently possess both majorities, uh, the majority in the House and the Senate, as well as currently occupy the White House. Right. So one other uh, priority for the uh, White House this week, the president was getting a little flack uh, from um, Democrats on the left, particularly, that he was not pushing hard enough on voting rights, making that a, enough of a priority. Uh, he went to Philadelphia uh, and gave a very powerful speech this week. Here, just a little sample, if you will, of the president's passion on that issue. We have to prepare now. That's why, just like we did in 2020, we have to prepare for 2022. We'll engage in an all-out effort to educate voters about the changing laws register them to vote, and then get the vote out. We'll be asking my Republican friends in Congress and states and cities and counties to stand up for God's sake and help prevent this concerted effort to undermine our election and the sacred right to vote. Have you no shame? So, Sung Min, a very powerful speech followed by any action, do you think? Um, I think that's a great question. I think the the answer, if you're talking about the type of action that activists has, have sought, is no at this point. Um, certainly a very powerful speech. It was the most animated that I have seen Joe Biden, particularly on this issue of voting rights, making sure there is um, access to the polls, um, and a really forceful condemnation of a lot of these uh, a lot of these bills that are being taken up by Republican-led legislatures across the country. Um, he denounced the big lie. He talked about how you know every electoral challenge has been thrown out by dozens of federal judges, um, and he tried to make and he made the case for legislation on the federal level to expand voting access. But the problem is the numbers um, on Capitol Hill, particularly in the Senate and the filibuster, which we've talked about so often this year. And the problem and the the glaring kind of um, hole in the speech that everyone, um, particularly the activists noted, was there was no discussion about Joe Biden's position on the filibuster, which is preventing passage of voting rights legislation on Capitol Hill. And the issue with that is, you know, not only do uh, not enough Senate Democrats support changing the rules of the Senate to pass legislation by a simple majority rather than the 60 votes that's needed for most legislation, but also Joe Biden himself does not support that. And that's created for, you know, for a very long time for, for throughout his presidency, this tension between the White House and Joe Biden himself, and um, a lot of these civil rights leaders, progressive activists, um, who say voting rights is the existential issue of you know our time, you know, particularly in this cycle, uh, particularly at a time when the administration is fa- you know is generating so much of their focus, their attention on other priorities such as infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, um, it, it, when I heard the president's speech, he he is condemning what the what the what particularly Republican legislators are doing around the country, but he also seems to accept that that's the reality you're going to have to deal with in 2022. Yeah, and what what he's discovering, uh, and and what a lot of his, his critics on the left now are discovering too, is that the bully pulpit really isn't what it used to be. Uh, in a 
in a really tribal atmosphere like this, traveling around the country, giving speeches, even if they're even if it's a good speech like the one he gave in Philadelphia, it's not going to move many voters to your side. The, the margins are so failingly small about pers- uh, of persuadable voters. Uh, Biden strategically has preferred, and I think rightly, to meet with senators, uh, talk on the phone, do his uh, his his Senate style negotiating. Um, I think he might ultimately get there on the filibuster, but but it's not going to be on on this on this issue. Uh, I mean, if if you talk about the For the People Act, never mind sixty votes. He doesn't even have fifty votes for it. Uh, Manchin has said he's out on the on the For the People Act. Uh, if they if they tailor it a little bit more narrowly and and circumscribe it maybe around the John Lewis Act, uh, now we're getting somewhere. And then maybe mm-hmm. there's an argument for the for the filibuster if you've got say you know 51 senators on your side and you can pass it with a straight majority. Um, but I don't think the moment for the filibuster is it has arrived just yet. Right. So if the administration and Democrats in, in the Senate face a challenge on voting rights, and they also face a challenge, of course, on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is scheduled for a vote next week, uh, they've adopted, accepted, or put forth another challenge of their own uh, this week with a $3.5 trillion budget bill. Um, Sabrina, w- president went up to the Hill, had lunch with the de- Senate Democrats, said, we're going to get this done. Uh, what are the chances for this getting through? Well, a lot of that depends on holding uh, the entire caucus uh, in line. And I think that the big question is, can he uh, come out with a package that maintains support from both progressives who think already that this package is too small, as well as party moderates who are who think it's too big or would probably want to see some changes? And, you know, this is, of course, I think just something that gives you a sense of um, their spending priorities for the party. It includes, um, you know, an expansion of Medicare and climate programs that there is that extension of the child tax credit we were talking about, although it's not Mm -hmm. clear just yet uh, how many years uh, for how many years it would expand Medicare to cover dental vision and hearing services for seniors, fund health care you know, for those living in red states that refuse to expand Medicaid. So there are a lot of progressive priorities that are contained in this package. But because Democrats are going to have to do this through, you know, the process known as reconciliation and just a simple majority vote, they, there really isn't any margin for error. Um, you know, this is what President Biden said, though, when he was getting some criticism from Democrats for the bipartisan infrastructure compromise uh, that was unveiled just a couple of weeks ago, Biden said, you know, because it didn't contain a lot of the economic priorities for the Democratic Party, what Biden said at the time is that will be uh, on a du- we're going to do this on a dual track. And so he's going to move forward with this bipartisan infrastructure compromise in the hopes of corralling enough Republican support uh, to pass it through the normal legislative process. And separately, we have this big spending bill um, mm-hmm. that would be done with only Democratic support. If, if need be. And needless to say, it will be done with only Democratic support. But I think we're all eyes are going to be on those party moderates in the coming weeks to see if there are any specific concessions that they demand. And in turn, would that jeopardize support uh, from other Democrats Biden would need in order to enact this legislation? Well, on that point, uh, Sung Min, I know you uh, talked to Senator Bernie Sanders about it who originally wanted a much bigger bill, even though $3.5 trillion is a lot of change. Uh, Tell us about uh, what uh, Senator Sanders told you. Yeah, so Senator Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, in his role as the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, has taken a lead role in drafting this budget blueprint and had publicly said for a while that $6 trillion was the number that he was looking at to encompass all of these priorities. Um, And ultimately, um, obviously, at the behest of some of the more moderate, some of the more fiscal-minded members of his caucus, the group landed on $3.5 trillion, as, as, as we know 
that is not certainly by no means a chump change, but it is certainly lower than what uh, Senator Sanders had been aiming for. And the reason uh, he had advocated for that number was because that was what would cover all of the priorities that he and other progressives wanted to get into this package. But I asked him about that just as he we were on Capitol Hill late Tuesday night when the 11 or, or when the dozen or so um, Democrats in the Senate Budget Committee came out with this agreement. Senator Sanders was leaving the Capitol. And I was like, look, you've called for $6 trillion several times. You know what? Are you disappointed about where uh, where the numbers landed? And he said, look, he uh, this is going to be the biggest, um, you know, government aid program since the Great Depression. And he was just really happy to be part of that. And I think that um, it's 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 another example of Bernie as pragmatist, which is a side of his political personality that we don't hear about all too much. But he does have negotiating chops, whether it's with other Republicans on, for example, veterans legislation, or with other um, Democrats in his own caucus who he doesn't always necessarily see eye to eye with, but can reach an agreement. Uh, Jeff, as uh, Sabrina mentioned, this $3.5 trillion uh, contains a lot of stuff that would not normally be contained in an, uh, the annual budget, right? I mean, there is uh, stuff about uh, a path to citizenship for uh, the DACA uh, kids, right? Um, Medicare expansion of Medicare covering dental and vision. So this is sort of the Democratic wish list, isn't it? And as these bills tend to be sure um remember <laughs> right, that right. i mean remember the uh the, the stimulus in the early obama years uh for the, for the great recession that was the criticism also that it just became a christmas tree to, for democrats to hang everything on it that they had wanted for the last decade um they schumer last week announced that they had this deal uh, but what he really meant was they had a deal between sanders and the budget committee on the one hand and then Schumer and the Democratic leadership on the other, uh, which is a far cry from actually having 50 Democratic votes committed, which is exactly what they need for this to pass. Um, on the one hand, we haven't heard any specific red lines from Democrats yet, uh, but, but Tester and Manchin have both said they need this to be paid for, uh, which so far it, it doesn't seem like it, like it is, or at least it's very unclear. Uh, I assume Cinema is going to be in the same camp. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, we could play devil's advocate. I could play devil's advocate with myself and ask whether Manchin really wants to be the guy who cast a vote that effectively torpedoes Biden's first term. I, I don't think he will. What I do think is that they may end up res- resorting to some uh, accounting tricks like uh, pulling out of Tom DeLay's old playbook uh, where you're going to use dynamic scoring and we'll have some 10-year phase-outs <laughs> and you know, these kinds of things. And speaking of Tom DeLay, I, I also wonder how close Schumer is going to keep his cards to to his vest. He he said that there's going to be a first vote on the hard infrastructure package next week or on the legislative vehicle for it anyway. But mind you, there's still no legislative text that anyone can read yet about this. So, you know, we could get another Tom DeLay style move here where the, the text of the bill comes out, you know, 16 hours before the vote. And by the way, we're going to whip it. You don't have time to read it, but we're going to whip it. So uh, you you may see some parliamentary uh, tricks. <laughs> a little kabuki theater there. I think uh, so. I think so. I, yeah, right. Now, before we leave the Capitol, uh, it was announced yesterday by uh, Chairman Benny Thompson that the first hearing of the January 6th se- uh, Select Committee will be held on July 27. As yet, Kevin McCarthy has not appointed any Republicans to uh, sit on this committee. Um, what do we know about that, Sabrina? Is he going to appoint members? Doesn't he really have to participate or is he going to just, uh, you know, take a pass? Well, there is an expectation uh, that he will appoint members because the first hearing is on July 27th. There's effectively a deadline uh, for McCarthy to do so. And, you know, I've spoken to some aides who say that he does intend to announce his selections before that first hearing. Uh, but I think the big question is, uh, who will they be? And there is a likelihood that those people will be supporters or defenders of former President Trump. If you think about what he was doing in the past couple of days, um, you know, his visit to uh, 
see to see former President Trump on Thursday at his Bedminster Golf Club uh, was a sign that he is still loyal to Trump, or at least uh, un- understands um, the influence that Trump continues to have over the party. So, you know, I think I think there he he's probably going to avoid, based on my understanding, some of the more uh, controversial fig- figures in the party. So I, I don't think that we'll see Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gaetz um, as part of those selections. And also, and also that's, you know, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi does have the right to veto any of McCarthy's picks. So I think it, it was it's probably going to be, um, still having said that, Republicans who are more likely to defend Trump or try to separate him from the events of January 6th. And in general, I think McCarthy is obviously going to be a key figure uh, during the committee's investigation because it's likely that he will also be called before the committee to talk about the infamous phone call he had with Trump while rioters were storming the Capitol. Uh, you know, as as it was widely reported, McCarthy was begging uh, the then president to call it off to tell his supporters to go home. He's you know taken a very different public tone about that phone call, but it's very possible that he'll be asked to testify as well as part of this investigation. Isn't that what's behind this entire decision, Sung Min? Uh, as CNN reports this morning, um, the 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 plan, Kevin McCarthy's plan to win back the House in 2022 is entirely focused on Donald Trump. Right. I mean, Kevin McCarthy knows that for the for the political ben- for, for for the political fortunes of of his uh, of House Republicans taking back the majority, and also for frankly for him becoming Speaker of the House, should Republicans take back the majority, is so tied to Donald Trump because again, Donald Trump still holds so much sway over the party, over with Republican lawmakers. So Kevin McCarthy knows that for better or for worse, he cannot kind of separate himself uh, from Donald Trump, which is why you saw that meeting in Bedminster yesterday. Um, you, it, he, he does, he can't, um, you, you know, he, he can't take kind of the distancing that, for example, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has been able to do. Because again, the political fortunes are so tied between Kevin McCarthy and Donald Trump. You know, aides indicated that perhaps uh, McCarthy's appointments to the January 6th commission did not come up in his conversation with Donald Trump uh, during his visit. But you can certainly be sure that um, that kind of Trump will loom large over the decision that Kevin McCarthy ultimately makes. Which, Jeff, raises for me the question, uh, do they realize that uh, with Donald Trump at the top of the ballot in 2020, they lost the House, they lost the Senate, and they lost the White House? Uh, but for, from McCarthy's perspective, it may not matter for 2022. Um, he, he only, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, he only needs a, a, a couple of seats. He needs, what, four or five seats. And he's got, got, redi- he's got the, the winds of redistricting at his back. Um, and, and given the way that, uh, that, that the, the districts break down, uh, None of that may matter. Uh, he, he still may win. Uh, there are three names that I'm really curious about in terms of whether he's going to appoint them. And yes, uh, Pelosi can can veto them because they, of course, the Democrats, uh, or I'm sorry, the Republicans killed the, uh, the bipartisan panel right. in which they would have had equal say. Um, if, if he goes for Jim Jordan or Devin Nunes, um, would she potentially uh, nix either of those, especially Nunes, because he was so close yeah. to, to the White House's machinations? Um, and then the third one is John Katko, uh, yeah. who, of course, was the Homeland Security or is the Homeland Security ranking member who negotiated the um, the bipartisan bill for the commission uh, and and knows more about this than just about anybody. Uh, if if McCarthy appoints him, it shows that he's got some sort of seriousness. If it's more on the Jordan and, and, and Nunes line, then it's it's all about throwing spitballs from the sidelines. Right. Yeah. Particularly John Katko. I've got my eyes uh, eyes on him, too. So lots going on in the Hill. Uh, we've been edging up to talking about uh, uh, Donald Trump. He has been talking a lot about all the, <laughs> some of the books that have come out, and there are even more this flood of Donald Trump books. Uh, let's get into that and what we might have learned from them uh, with our panel after we take a quick break here 
on the Bill Press Pod. We'll be back with our panelists today. Sung Min Kim from the Washington Post, Jeff Dufour from National Journey and Journal, and Sabrina Siddiqui from the Wall Street Journal. And today's roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, those great men and women of the Teamsters Union. Under President Jim Hoffa, they are America's largest and most diverse labor union, over 1.5 million members strong, representing every segment of the American working force from vegetable workers in California to bakery workers in Maine construction workers in Las Vegas or brewery workers in St. Louis. As they say, they represent everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. We salute the members of the Teamsters and thank them for their good work and their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And we're back with today's panelists, uh, Sung Min Kim joining us for the first time from the Washington Post, Jeff Dufour from the National Journal, Sabrina Siddiqui from the Wall Street Journal, a flood of uh, new books, some out, some just coming out, most of them already leaking little excerpts in order to get an advance uh, publicity bounce out of their release, books about the last year and the last months and weeks of the Trump administration. Uh, what do you think? Sung Min Kim, have we learned anything new out of all these books? Certainly a lot of new details about um, just what, you know, not only what President was doing and his mindset, especially during the really tumultuous last several weeks of, of the transition and particularly on January 6th. And some of the really interesting new revelations are how people around him and senior government officials, senior military officials, what they were thinking and what their concerns were and how deep those concerns were. So one example I want to point out is from my colleagues, uh, my wonderful colleagues, Phil Rucker and uh, Carol Lennig over at The Post, whose book is coming out next week. They talked about how uh, General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was so disturbed by President Trump's rhetoric as he he, um, spoke to that Save America rally that unfolded right before that insurrection on the day of certain on the day where Joe Biden's uh, electoral victory was supposed to be a uh- was supposed to be um, certified. And he was so concerned, not only during the rally, but General Milley was also so worried just in the days going up to the insurrection that he was warning to colleagues, friends, other lawmakers about the threat of a coup. Um, So a lot of these, uh, so that, so for our top military leaders to be at that level of concern um, about the, frankly, fragility of the government are really striking revelations. I think obviously, Obviously, we we know how terrible the circumstances were at the time. You know, many of us, many of our colleagues and friends were physically there living through it. But with the benefit of hindsight and just kind of having that, um, having you, you really can kind of step back and just see how bad it was and just really understand how concerned even top military officials were about what was going on. 
Well, it's interesting. While the, the president, former president, keeps denying a lot of stuff that comes out and says that's just not true, uh, he himself keeps talking about January sixth. He um, talks about the rally. Um, basically being just fueled by pure love. Here is uh, the former president. There was such love at that rally. You had over a million people there. They were there for one reason, the rigged election. And they were peaceful people. These were great people. The crowd was unbelievable. And I mentioned the word love, the love, the love in the air. I've never seen anything like it. Sabrina, (laughs) I didn't see a lot of love and I didn't see a million people. (laughs) <laughs> well, needless to say, uh, those comments are not rooted in reality. And I think, you know, we have seen time and again, uh, the former president downplay what actually transpired on January 6th. I mean, even in the moment itself, it took a couple of attempts for him to unequivocally call uh, for his supporters to go home. And even when he did in that infamous video from the day, he said, we love you uh, to those people who had just breached the Capitol and who were violently attacking a Capitol police and journalists and also had the intention to uh, attack not just lawmakers, but his own vice president. Um, I think, look, you know, what there's also, of course, these books uh, that we're discussing right now, and they really just get it. Um, not just the chaos, of course, in those final weeks, but the extent to which this was a president who was willing to use his own power as he saw fit. Um, And if it weren't for certain people in the room, it's not clear what he would have been able to achieve, right? I mean, there's talk of whether or not he was going to attempt some kind of coup. What's what's notable, though, is, and my colleague, Michael Bender, who is one of Mm -hmm. the authors of these books... um, you know, he, he reported that it's interesting because it just provides, I think, a good uh, juxtaposition that when the Black Lives Matter protesters were unfolding in last summer, at that time, one thing that President Trump wanted to do was to deploy the military and have them use live ammunition against protesters. And those are people who are marching in the streets for racial justice, not people who had breached the U.S. Capitol and were desecrating uh, the capital uh, of, the, of the United States. So I, I think that's a very interesting just juxtaposition um, that comes forward from these books, but it really just reveals again um, what his view was of the powers of the presidency and that we c- it could have been a whole lot worse if it weren't for people who did not give in to his whims. Right. Uh, and Jeff, I want to play one more clip from the president where he takes this attempt to totally repaint, uh, reinvent what happened on January 6th uh, to, uh, I I think, a pretty troubling level, um, um, making a martyr out of a person who uh, invaded the Capitol and was threatening Capitol police officers. Here's the president on Ashley Babbitt. Who shot Ashley Babbitt? Why are they keeping that secret? Who was the person that shot an, an innocent wonderful, incredible woman, a military woman, right in the head. Jeff, uh, no limits to where the president will go, I guess, former president. No. In many ways, the, the, the picture of Trump is is probably going to get worse as we continue to hear more of these anecdotes as far as his detachment from reality and a, and a detachment from a, from a normal standard of morality, too. Um, is it a is it a tragedy that that Babbitt died? Yeah, it's a tragedy that she was pulled into this alternate reality and as a result put herself in harm's way. Um, but she was also at the forefront of this phalanx of armed rioters who were trying to force their way onto the House floor while members were still in there and staff. Um, and I had a reporter in there in the gallery. All three of us probably had colleagues in there that day. And and the sad truth of the situation is that. That one shot that killed her probably got her group to temporarily back off or there would have been a lot more bloodshed. Um, as it is, if Sabrina mentioned live ammunition, as it is, I think it's an enduring credit to the Capitol Police, and they probably haven't gotten enough credit for this, that they fought these people hand to hand and didn't open fire on more of them. 
or there would have been so the, the, the day could have been infinitely worse. I mean, you talk about we had what five people die that day. You, you could have had dozens uh, had that had the Capitol Police not shown a little bit more restraint. You, you could have had uh, a dozen Ashley Babbitts and a dozen police officers uh, dead. Yeah. Uh, excellent, excellent point. Uh, before we go, I just wanted to get each of you to comment on um, we sort of are living with the uh, uh, satisfaction that COVID was behind us and we could get back to normal. And suddenly this week we see, uh, uh-oh, uh, cases are back up and vaccinations are weighed down. Uh, the Biden administration is uh, concerned about this, particularly concerned about people who are putting false information out there about the impact and the effect of the vaccines. Uh, Sungman Kim, uh, is the White House on top of this? Are they really concerned and what can they do about it? They are certainly concerned on multiple levels um, for, you know, for many reasons. Obviously, we've seen how um, politicized the reaction to the COVID uh, pandemic has been, but it has certainly become that way because on the specific issues of vaccines. And while you can kind of point to, you know, various factors that would indicate a certain population would be, you know, you know, more or less likely to be vaccinated, one of the defining kind of dividing points is partisanship. So getting vaccinated has become a really politically polarizing issue when it frankly should not be. And the White House recognizes that. They have said over and over that they acknowledge that they themselves, for example, are not the best messengers to persuade people to get vaccinated. They are really relying on, you know, local doctors, members of their community, uh, members of the clergy who have trust with people who are vaccine hesitant to try to reach out to them and first make sure that the vaccines are available and and then to persuade people to get them. But at the same time, there's a lot of, you know, not only antipathy towards uh, vaccines unfolding, but at the same time, a lot of, you know, misinformation that is unfolding about the efficacy and the safety of the vaccines. And I think you you saw White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki um, at a briefing earlier this week, kind of take a tougher stance and acknowledge, for example, the role that social media companies have and the responsibility that they have in, you know, help making sure that accurate information is spread about vaccines. Uh, So they are doing what they can, but they are also, the Biden White House is also being overcome by political forces, um, you know, whether it's on vaccines or on the pandemic writ large that they're that is making their effort to bring this pandemic to a close that much harder. So Sabrina is Olivia Rodrigo the answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that you know one of the strategies here is to tap into uh, the kinds of public figures who have a lot of sway with those who have yet to be vaccinated. And one of those key groups is young Americans. Um, People between the ages of 18 and 26 are lagging behind in vaccination rates. That's something that uh, my colleague and I wrote about last week, trying to understand why. And it's a variety of reasons. Misinformation is certainly part of the reason. But I think for some of these younger Americans, it's less about the misinformation and more that they want to wait and see, or they don't actually think they need the vaccine because they think that they have the sense that they're invincible, that they won't get that sick. And that's why the Delta variant is so concerning. And you hear public health officials really sounding the alarm because in addition to just cases going back up in some areas, as well as hospitalizations, um, and all of the hospitalizations and deaths really at, the, at this point largely being made up of those who are unvaccinated, there are more cases, according to a lot of uh, health officials I've spoken with, among young people and more hospitalizations among young people, which is one thing that is different from the start of the pandemic. Um, and it just goes to show that the Delta variant is not only more transmissible, but it is also more dangerous. And so I think that that, you know what the White House can do is try and use its bully pulpit. That's what you see them doing. Um, and you know, Dr. Fauci has sat down with a, a lot of TikTok influencers, who I'm sure he had never heard of. I wonder <laughs> if he had even heard of TikTok before. Um, but but look, the the way that the White House has described this to me is, you know, we have to meet we have to meet these people where they are, and they're not getting their information. Uh, much to our dismay from some of our news outlets, they're getting young people yeah. are getting their information from social media. 
Um, and so that's how they're going to try to target them. Um, whether or not it makes a difference remains to be seen, especially as public health ex experts are cautioning that we could be in for a very dark fall um, if we don't get, uh, if more people are not vaccinated, the Delta variant is not brought under control. Uh, and you know, Jeff, I saw a statistic this week that 99% of the new COVID cases are people who were not vaccinated. That's a pretty convincing argument, it seems to me. It is. And yet you had a, a moment at CPAC this weekend where a speaker had mentioned that the government was not going to hit its its vaccination goal and the crowd applauded. Um, for the last year plus, we saw people uh, on the right rage against mask mandates. We had Tucker telling people to confront parents whose children wore masks. We've had people pull guns on other people over masks. Um, vaccination was the ticket to ending all of that. You don't want to wear a mask in public? Don't want to get in arguments about it? Great. Get a vaccine. And you know mm -hmm. what? You can give Trump credit while you're, while you're at yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, Trump was the Operation Grand Slam or whatever. No, that was Goldfinger, but whatever he called it. <laughs> um, you can give Trump credit while you're at it. But nope. Now that's anathema too. Uh, opposition to any strategy to mitigate the spread of the virus or limit its morbidity and mortality has become part of the catechism on the on, on the far right. It's what uh, Charlie Sykes, who's been on your podcast, it's what yeah. he likes to call the Republican death cult. It, mm. It's like they're they're one step away from going full Jonestown massacre in the in in the service of Trump. Yeah, it's pretty frightening. Uh, and uh, let's just hope that people come to their senses, get vaccinated, and we can, in fact, move on. Uh, we will let you move on to the rest of your day after you uh, share with us your favorite story of the week, as you always say, as busy as we are and all the different stories we're on top of. There's one that makes you stop in your tracks at least for a few moments and say, wow, how about that? Um, Jeff, you want to start us off your favorite story of the week? I will. Um, there was a story in my, uh, my former employer, the Washington Examiner from long, long ago. Um, the story was that, uh, social media platforms popular with, with right leaning users like Parler, Getter, and, and MeWe, um, <laughs> are having a problem attracting people simply because if everyone on the platform agrees with you, it's so much harder to own the libs, <laughs> which is to say that surrounding yourself with your tribe and people who agree with you and being in your silo is great and all, but it's, it's only really fun when you can, when you can take it out yeah. on people who don't agree with you, which is why I think a lot of them are going to stay on Twitter. Because mm. what do you want to do? You want people to agree with you? Yeah, but you also want to fight with people who don't. Uh, yeah. It's, 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 it's two sides to this, uh, to this coin. That's very, very, very interesting. And uh, as one who's made a, a career in radio and television debate, um, right, yeah, you want to mix it up, right? You don't just want to talk to people who always agree with you. Uh, Sabrina, tell us your favorite story of the week. Well, you won't be surprised that it has to do with <laughs> dogs, which is my usual um, contribution <laughs> to this segment. Um, and I've been tracking very closely the uh, correlation between COVID-19 and dogs, or mm -hmm. uh, the intersection, I should say, yeah. the correlation. Um, and law enforcement officials in Massachusetts are using COVID-19 or dogs to sniff, sniff out COVID-19. You know, I, I've talked on this show about uh, yeah. research that's being done to see if dogs can detect the virus. And it looks like Bristol County and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts um, are now the first uh, law enforcement group in the country to utilize dogs who have been trained to detect the virus. So um, I think this is something that we might start to see more of. But the two dogs, Hunter and Duke, graduated their training on Wednesday. They are step siblings. Um, and they just like drugs and weapons and you know any suspicious activity, uh, they will be out on you know on the streets 
looking to sniff out COVID-19. That is your beat, Sabrina, man. You've got it covered. I got to tell you. I'm waiting for the Pulitzer Committee to take notice. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for your book uh, on the COVID dog. Uh, what caught your attention this week, uh, Sungmin? Um, I actually want to highlight a story that a colleague of mine, Erica Warner, did out from her new uh, post out in California. She's a former longtime congressional reporter, now um, is one of our California correspondents. And she did this piece that was so fascinating earlier this week about heat tourists who go to places like Death Valley, California, Death Valley National oh. Park, basically when it reaches record high temperatures to be able to say that they were there. So there is this thermometer at Death Whoa. Valley National Park that you know has the, temperature, yeah. the current temperature. So these heat tourists go and um, take pictures of themselves next to it when the thermometer reads 135 degrees like it was earlier, I believe on Sunday or Monday. And um, obviously this issue raises a lot of important policy and scientific questions about the impact of climate change on our lives and what what is going to happen years down the line. But just as a human interest story, (laughs) I found it just fascinating. These people who actually wanted to be out in 130 degree heat, just to say they were there. Uh, most of us would run away from it, right? Exactly. But they're out there. They were frying eggs on the sidewalk until park rangers told them to not do that. <laughs> they were and taking pictures of themselves by the thermometer. It was quite the read. Oh, my God. Anyhow. Well, those are great. I'll tell you, my favorite story of the week is um, uh, Jeff Bezos and the big decision he made yesterday <laughs> to add this 18-year-old Dutch teenager uh, to his crew that will uh, fly with him into space on on July 20. Uh, The crew now contains the oldest astronaut ever to go into space, uh, Mary Wallace Funk, known as Wally Funk, uh, who's 82 years old. And now this teenager, Olivier uh, Oliver Damon, who is, will be 18, so the youngest person ever to go into space and the oldest ever uh, up with Jeff Bezos on July 20. But that's not the whole, the real story. The real story that caught my attention is that this teenager got to go because the guy who paid $28 million to go with Jeff Bezos at the last minute had a scheduling conflict and couldn't make the flight. <laughs> now, I got to ask you all, what the hell could you be doing Right after you spent $28 million and this flight has been scheduled for months, what the hell could you be doing that's more important than taking that flight into space? He had to have lunch with his mother in law. <laughs> I think that would do it. <laughs> you know People what? Have places to be. Well, we're going to find out the full story. I want to know, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story on that one. But at any rate, it opened a slot for this teenager whose father bought him a seat, and uh, Godspeed to all of them next week. Uh, And Godspeed and thanks to all of you, our great panelists today, Sabrina Siddiqui from the Wall Street Journal, Sungmin Kim from the Washington Post, Jeff Dufer from National Journal. Thank you so much, guys, for a great job this morning, and thank you all for listening. As we've just been talking about, COVID is not over yet, so please take care of yourself. Be safe. Wear the mask if it makes you more comfortable, and certainly in some places where you think you should, keep wearing that mask. Uh, Be strong, be safe, and then come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.